The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Thank you. As you're being seated, if you're seeing this card for the first time, you weren't here when I explained it earlier, I'll just briefly mention. Uh, we're trying to balance out the attendance level at the two services. Uh, last week, Granger and I stood in the back wall and saw it was virtually impossible for a family of three or more to find seats without coming to the front row, which a guest is not going to feel comfortable doing that. So if you're flexible, don't feel bad if you're not. If you've got service rotation or classes you're committed to and it can't be changed, that's okay. But those of you who can and will, sign the card, place in the offering plate. Uh, at the end of the service, I'm going to repeat what the Lord led us to do in the first service. I'm going to use this card for another purpose, so don't let it confuse you. When I tell you to write on the back of the card and come up here, you can still do what we said, both or either, just... Just figure it out. I'll try not to confuse you to death when we go through it. All right. Well, we're looking at Romans chapter 9 and following today. And let's just review where the Lord has been going with, uh, with this in chapter 9. If you remember, Paul has been explaining that God is both sovereign and good. God is sovereign. God is good. What we've seen is that unbelief does not thwart the plans of God. God is sovereign even over evil and unbelief. We've seen this very clearly in chapter 9, that God not only is sovereign over it, but He even uses evil and unbelief to bless His children, those who do believe. He says, I work all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. We see God use evil unbelief like, for example, in Pharaoh. To, to use that hard heart of Pharaoh to, ex, to explode the glory of God on the scene. So God's sovereign over even that. He's not some God limited to man's uh, working and willing. It's God is sovereign. But we also saw he's good. He is a good, loving, just God. And we saw that the fact that God saves any is an unbelievable act of mercy. The question is raised, well, how is God nice and merciful when he doesn't just save everybody? The presumption is wrong. That presumes that God is looking at this great group of people and refusing to believe, refusing to save people who are just wanting to be saved. That's not how it works. God looks at us and he sees our wicked rebellion and evil and rejection of him daily. And he is gracious and merciful to save everyone who will call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's an act of mercy and grace that none of us deserves. And that is good news that he will save everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. And the more we realize we don't deserve it, the more joy and amazement and worship response we have to this glorious good news that he saves people through Jesus Christ. And so Paul has been telling us these things, and that is the gospel. That, that's a Greek word. Gospel is just a Greek word that means good news. Bad news, we are all condemned, and rightly so, because we're sinning and rebelling against God. Good news, he will save all who put their faith in Christ. Jesus died on the cross so that we can be saved, and that is a gift of mercy. And what good news that is. But what do you see when you look around you? What do you see the different responses are to that good news? Does everyone just go, yeah, that sounds great. We see a variety of responses. 
And that's what Paul's been doing. He looked around the people in his life, especially his Jewish brothers and sisters, those born of the same descent, of the same lineage of Abraham. Particularly, they're called Israelites because their forefather was named Israel. And so he looked at them and he saw the tragic irony that though they had such good news offered to them, they rejected it. And it broke Paul's heart. In chapter 9, it opened up with Paul saying, I am in anguish. I am in anguish over all the unbelief that I see around me. So I ask you today, are you in anguish over the unbelief that you see around you? Of people you know and you love and you care for them and you consider them dear friends. And yet, they're not receiving Christ. This is my prayer for us today. This is the staff's prayer for us, the elders' prayer for us, is that we will be like Paul. And today, hearing the message of God, that we will be stricken in our hearts. Not by the generic faces of unbelievers, but by one name. And that's what these cards are. The people who came to the first service, we wept, we prayed over one name that God is putting on our heart. I'm going to ask you at the end of this service to do the same. Father, help us this morning. Help us as we look at your word. Help us as we come to the scriptures realizing that this is no book written by man alone, but God's Authority is in this message from the scriptures. Bring about a mighty conviction in the heart that only you can do. Begin even now. Bring to mind name. One name to each mind in this room and each heart. Bring to mind one name of who we know that you have placed in our life for us to share love invest in, pray for their salvation. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, in these verses, Paul is considering the tragic irony of the fact that Gentiles have come to faith when Israelites have rejected Christ. And he's broken over the tragic irony. And we're going to look at this as he considers four different considerations. First, let's consider the people. Look at verses 30 and 31. Paul considers the people. He says, well, what shall we say then? And then he answers the question. Here's what we should say. We should say that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. It's so ironic In these verses, Paul describes two types of people who are represented by Israel and the Gentiles. He's making massive generalizations when he says Israel. It doesn't mean there's not individuals. He's he's just saying in general, Israel rejected Christ. In general, the Gentiles started coming to Christ. And he's going to tell us that in general, Israel was pursuing the righteousness of God. They were seeking it with all of their might. He's going to call them as zealous, sincere seekers of God and His righteousness. And yet they missed it. They missed it. 
we're going to see those people represent in our lives very sincere, zealous, religious people who are in the churches right now, seeking God, wanting His righteousness, but they're unbelievers. Comparing, contrasting them, he overgeneralizes with the Gentiles who who weren't religious, who didn't have the law of God, who didn't have the temple and the worship sacrifices. They didn't have all those great blessings. They didn't have the Bible, know the Bible, read the Bible, study the Bible, teach the Bible, memorize the Bible, baptism, Lord's Supper. They didn't have all that. And they found God's righteousness. This text is a bullseye on our foreheads. Shreveport, the most religious place in the world. And our chairs are filled with people zealous for God and His righteousness and missing it. And it crushes Paul's heart. And it should crush our heart as well. Consider the people in your life. When you look around yourself, when you look in Shreveport, when you look in your neighborhood, when you drive to church, when you walk in these doors and you're shaking hands, when you're at work and you start to know those people and you you hear they go to church, when you are with friends at school and you're hanging out and you get to know them, you, if you truly have found the righteousness of God, which is only a gift of faith from Christ Himself, you know when someone doesn't get it. Does it break your heart? Consider the people God has put in your life. They're not there by accident. God put them there. Your family members. Your father, your mother, your grandparents, your aunts, your uncles, your cousins, your sister, your brother. Do they get it? Do you care? Everywhere we look, consider the people around you. So many Sincere, zealous people are doing religion and missing it because they think their religion is making them right with God. And it doesn't work that way. I want you to think of one name. I'm praying, I've been praying, the staff is praying that God puts one name name on your heart today. It's easy to hide behind the masses. Consider how tragic it is to spend a lifetime with that person and at the end of their life they get it and they realize I missed it and they look you square in the eyes And they say, I thought you loved me. Why didn't you make me understand? And you say, I didn't want to offend you. Isn't going to cut it. Do you care?
like Paul cares for these people. Consider the people. Next, we consider the problem. In verses 32 and following, he says, Why? Why did they miss it? Here's the problem. Because they didn't pursue it by faith. But as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written. He quotes Isaiah he says, Behold, I lay a stone, I lay a Zion, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. What's Paul saying here? Paul is telling us the problem with Israel, the problem with religious unbelievers. What could be so wrong about Israel who is passionately pursuing the righteousness of God? What could be so wrong with you and your friends who are sincerely going to church to see God and to receive his righteousness? What's the problem with that? He says, here's the problem. It's not about your sincerity. It's not about your religious zeal. It's not about your works or your performance or your attendance. It's about Jesus Christ. It's a gift of grace. We're not here saying we are performing better than them. We're here saying, I get it. I'm wicked and by God's grace, he gives me mercy in Jesus Christ. Give me mercy in Christ. That's what makes us the people of God. We're not exalting ourselves in self-righteousness, looking down our pathetic self-righteous nose with judgmental attitudes toward those poor people who don't get it. We are on our face thanking God for His mercy and His grace despite my despicable religious deeds that are laced with pride and corruption. That's who we are. That's the difference is that we see how wicked we are, not how good we are. In Isaiah's passages that he quotes, he quotes Isaiah 8.14 and Isaiah 28.16. Listen to what he's doing here. Paul's quoting Isaiah. And in that quote, God is speaking to the religious leaders of Israel, the the cream, the elite of religion. I mean, if anybody's going to get it right because religion, they have reached the top of the ladder. And God says to them, I will bring my ultimate king, the ruler, over my own people. And a wrath, a storm of wrath is coming for you religious leaders because you've missed it. And your only hope is to take shelter in the rock of Jesus Christ, the promised seed of Abraham. You need to point my people that salvation is by grace through faith in the promised seed. But you religious leaders are teaching them that they are making themselves righteous through religion and a storm is coming. And your only hope is to take shelter in the rock. And then he sticks Isaiah 8.14 in there and he says, But to those who do not take shelter in the foundation rock, those who cast that stone aside, they stumble over that rock to their own death. Just like on any job site when 
bricklayers are laying the stones and one is cast out, if it's just thrown out in the footpath, that's a hazard that you trip over unto death. The irony is so thick that the people who are going to church and doing religion and cutting checks and going on mission trips and taking communion and being baptized all in the name of Christ, if it's done to try to merit the righteousness of God, all that they are doing is their rejection of Christ. Is not done to earn righteousness. Religion, baptism, Lord's Supper, church membership, community group, cutting checks to fund the gospel mission, going on mission trips to speak the gospel, all of that, coming here and singing, all of that is the response of having already been declared righteous because of Christ alone. It's not making oneself righteous. It's tragic that we're not explaining this to people. It's tragic that we're talking about everything but this in our churches. It's tragic that we come in here and we celebrate it and then we go to work and we don't open our mouths. It's tragic that we drive with them as they go to their church or we go to our church or we pull in the parking lot together and we know they don't get it and we say we love them and we don't say a word. In chapter 10, verses 2 through 3, Paul highlights the tragic nature of stumbling of the religious person. In verse 2 and 3, he says, For I testify these things about them. Listen to how he describes them. These are good things. He says, I testify about them that they have a zeal for God. They are passionately zealous for God. They want God but not in accordance with knowledge. And we don't tell them. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God, which he said already is by faith. Think about how tragic this is. The people who are stumbling to their death are not stumbling because they don't want to have anything to do with God. They're not stumbling because they are saying, I am atheist, get out of my face. They are stumbling as they go to church. They are stumbling as they say, I want to be called a Christian. They are stumbling as they say, I want the righteousness of God. But we're not saying, okay, well, let's talk about this. The, the, the religion doesn't make you right with God. Christ alone makes you right with God. It's a gift of faith. And then you want to sing praises. They're doing good deeds. They have zeal for God. They're sincere. They're 
zealous. They're passionate. But they're dead wrong. They have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. This is tragic because in the end they're going to find out God doesn't judge based on zeal. God doesn't judge based on sincerity. God judges based on one standard of truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. What have you done with Jesus? Is only measure to measure life by. But let's be clear. In verse 3, we understand from the context that this ignorance is not an ignorance as if they had no access to this knowledge. This is a willful ignorance. He says they did not have knowledge, but then right after that he says they were not willing to submit to the fact that you can only be made righteous by faith in Christ. This willful ignorance is like husbands when you say, I don't know how to iron, honey. (laughs) Wives, when you say, I don't understand how to work the lawnmower. It's a willful ignorance that says, I don't want to know because then I'll be expected to live out and do that. This is what he is saying is that Not being willing to submit to a Christ righteousness, they refused and they lived their lives apart from such knowledge. Now, why is the gospel so offensive? How can such good news be offensive? Why do people stumble over this glorious, good message? When you go and you share Christ, If you're naive, you think they're all just going to say, oh, well, that's great. I'm a sinner and I can have forgiveness in Christ by faith alone? Yeah. Put your faith in Christ. Why does venom come out so many times when we talk about this wonderful message? Why does the stone of salvation become the rock of offense? Because in order to receive righteousness, you must admit your guilt. You must admit your shame. You must admit your condemnation. You must admit your impotence. You must admit the futility of your ability to attain righteousness through religion. You must admit you can't do it on your own. And our Pride hates it. We want to build our own righteous shelter with our own stones. And so we take the foundation stone of Christ and we cast it aside. And we start climbing that religious ladder of what I can do and what I've earned and what I deserve. Until we get to the top rung and we fall to our death. So we must help 
them understand if we love them. This leads us to our third consideration, the promise. The promise in verse 4, 10-4, he says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Here, Paul makes a promise about Christ for everyone who believes. He said Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who earns it. No, to everyone who believes, receives entrust their their whole eternity to this truth in Christ. Now this could mean a couple of things. It could mean that he is saying that it is the end of the misunderstanding of the law. In other words, if we misunderstand that, that obeying the word of God and doing religion makes me right with God, when we believe in Christ, it ends that and we are made righteous because it's a gift of faith. Or perhaps more likely it means that Christ is the goal of the law, the end of the law, that all of the law, all of the religion, all of the the word of God points to Christ. And when someone sees that and believes and trusts in the one who is the righteous son of God, they are declared righteous. It is the fulfillment of the law when you trust in Christ who fulfilled the law. We need to understand the law for Israel was not given to them ever as a means of making themselves right with God. Don't raise your hands, but how many of you have thought that and heard that and been taught that? Oh, Old Testament, law. New Testament, grace. No! Genesis to Revelation is grace alone. Old Testament, looking forward to Christ. New Testament, Christ has come and he's coming again. So what was the law? The law was given to the people of faith in the promised one who would come. And as they came to the temple, it reminded them that Jesus is the presence of God. When they laid the sacrificial lamb on the altar, Jesus is the sinless lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When the high priest went in on the day of atonement and he Offered that lamb to God. Jesus is the great high priest. The sinless one. Who offered himself as a sacrifice. For your sins. All of it pointed to Jesus. And the people who had faith. In the coming seed of Abraham. Lived by faith. Ordered their lives. According to the law. Which was the path of righteousness. With curbs that kept their life. Out of the ditch. So that they might enjoy. The blessings of God. In their life. And the same is true for us. The word of God. Worshipping. Bible study. Giving sacrificially. Generously your money. To the kingdom purposes. Taking the Lord's Supper, being baptized, entering into a covenant community, living with these people, bearing the burdens of one another, spurring one another. This is how we enjoy the blessings of our righteous standing with God. It doesn't make you right with God. It is what you do because Christ has made us right with God. And so we sing and we give ourselves away because Christ gave us everything. And it sets us free to live for others' good, to love them, and to see them come to know the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So having considered the people in his life, 
and having considered the problem of their unwillingness to receive righteousness by faith and the problem of their making religion their ladder of righteousness and knowing the promise of God that righteousness is a gift to anyone and everyone who will receive it by faith in Christ, our final consideration, I skipped it to come back to it at the end. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. What is Paul's response? Our final consideration is his prayer. He says, Brethren, having considered all these things, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Are you passionate for their salvation? Are you praying for their salvation? Do you care like God cares? This sovereign God that he's been talking about, who gives salvation as a gift of mercy, in no way does that lead Paul away from prayer. It draws him in to say, I must call to the sovereign God of the universe on that person's behalf because I love them. Do you have passion and prayer for that one that you love? That one that God has put in your life? That one that God says, I will not save them against their will. They must call upon me to be saved Will you be a part of the great privilege of entering into that work and saying, Jesus loves you. Come to Christ. I am a sinner. I am not judging you. I come alongside you. Think about your friends at school. Think about your friends at work. Think about your family members. Who is God saying to you right now? Enter into my gospel work for their good. Don't think generic. Don't think the masses. Think about that face. Picture their face in your mind. And if you see your own face in the mirror, trust Christ right now. Instead of having a closing song today, I'm asking Allison Granger to come and play on the keys for us. And during this time... Already there are names of people that our members and our whoever was in the early service that they're praying for by name. Take that card that's in your chair. Do not be afraid to come up to the front altar. We have got to teach our people to use the altar for prayer. Use the altar to do business with God. I want you to take the back side of that card. Whether you're going to the early service or not, that's one side of the card. The other side is, I want you to write your name... And I want you to write one name of one person that God is putting on your heart. And that you're saying, by coming up here, you're entrusting this person to God. And your act of faith is to say, I am committing to join in in prayer. I will love them. 
I will invest in them. I will be with them. Like Kyle was sharing from his experience in New Orleans, I will be there when they call me in the depths of despair. I will be there. I will love them. I will display before their eyes an authenticity that says, when I sin, I go to Christ and I praise him for forgiveness and I repent. You model the gospel before their very eyes. Who is it that God has put in your life? They are not there by accident. Do not let them go their life zealous for God without knowledge. Enter into a spirit of prayer now as Allison Allison plays. And I'm up here during this time. If you need to trust Christ as Savior, you do it right now. You call out to God and say, God, I need your mercy. I'm a sinner and I don't deserve it. But by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, save me right now. And you come and talk to me if that's your desire. I want to talk to you about trusting Christ and following Christ. But who who has God put on your mind? However long it takes, we're going to stay here and we're going to do business with God. And we're going to see God fill this church with people who he has saved through you and your relationship with them. However long it takes. Write down names. Write your name, their name. Put it on here. After the services, the elders are going to meet and we're going to pray for them by name. And we're going to agree with you that God wants you to make a difference in their life that they may come to know Christ. And then the staff this week is going to pray for those people by name so that they will not look at us and say, did you not love me? But that we will love them enough to do the hard job of telling the truth even if they stumble on the rock for years and years. But just maybe, just maybe, they will take shelter in the rock of Christ. Think about it. Write the names down. Bring it up here. Lay it on the altar. Spend time at the altar praying over them. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.